Hi, my name's Mira Sabaratnam, and I'm going to be talking to you today about decolonization as part of the making of the modern world. So in today's lecture, we're going to be looking at four questions, essentially. Uh, what is decolonization? What do we mean by it? How did it happen when we talk about the main kind of wave of decolonization? What did it mean for the shaping of the modern world? So how does this thing connect to all the other things you're learning in this module? And why do we still talk about decolonization today? Isn't it over and done with? So let's start with that first question. What is decolonization? When we talk about decolonization, we mostly think about the processes by which imperial and colonial power is overturned. Uh, this can be at any time, really, but mostly the term refers to the middle of the 20th century when most countries in Asia and Africa got independence from European empires. However, we should make a note that some European empires uh, crumbled earlier than this, the Spanish Empire, for example, in Latin America. That's just a side note. We're mostly going to be thinking about the 20th century, the British and French and German and Portuguese empires that continued. So how big a change was this and what was happening? So if we look at this map here of empires in 1919, this is color coded for different kinds of imperial formations. And we can see two things essentially. The first is that most of the world is ruled by empires in 1919, right? That's not very long ago. It's just at the end of the First World War. And whilst lots of these empires are European, we see the British there in the pink, French there in the blue, the Belgian in the black, the German there in the sort of dark grey. Um, they weren't all European. So, for example, we can see the Japanese Empire in East Asia and the Ottoman Empire, which is right in the middle in the Middle East in that bright green colour. Right. So there was lots of empires around the world, um, predominantly European in uh, nature. A century later, we've got a world of nation states. We've got a world of nation states that is governed by borders. They're all politically independent from each other. They have their own leaders and parliaments and so on and so forth. How radical was this shift from empires to nation states? The first thing was that individuals had a really changed status. They went from being imperial subjects, usually loyal to a European crown, to citizens of post-colonial independent states, right? So that's a radical shift, not just in who they're loyal to, but what their status is within that polity. Those polities themselves changed from being these massive transnational empires stretching from, you know, Cairo to uh, Melbourne to nation states, which were territorially bounded, uh, more or less next to each other um, in terms of their borders. The shift also involved a shift from radical uh, racial hierarchy to racial equality. Now, it's difficult to underestimate how large a shift uh, that could be, but a world organized by peoples who were considered the most civilized, the most developed, to one in which everybody is understood to have an equal place in society. We change from an economic system based on the formal imperial control of economies to one in which national states and leaders had control over their economic uh, policies. And there was a big shift in international law, which recognized the uh, inviolability of sovereign states and also important things such as human rights, which were expanded to include things like the access to health, the access to education, all of which could not be taken for granted in the early 20th century. And critically, it's now illegal uh, and it 
became illegal through the 20th century to acquire territories by force. Now, this doesn't mean it hasn't happened, but it became illegal in a sense that it was not before. It was part of the normal business of empires. Which begs the question, why don't we hear more about decolonization compared to other major historical events? We hear a lot about the Second World War. We hear a lot about uh, the First World War. Um, but this is a major world historical event that changes the landscape of the globe and affects the lives of most people within it. Uh, but it's not something we talk about very often. We'll come to this question towards the end of the lecture. Um, but it's one to bear in mind as you think about decolonization. Okay, so let's move on to our second question. How did it happen? There are a series of different drivers involved, both long-term, medium-term and short-term, which we'll look at here. So what are the long-term drivers? The first thing to say is that empire is never always very popular. Yes, a lot of people might have lived under it. Yes, it might have been very durable, but because of the nature of the thing itself, a lot of people resisted it for a long period of time. Now, they did this in more and, uh, more and less kind of um, spectacular ways. The less spectacular ways often involve simply non-cooperation. So not paying your taxes, not volunteering in the way that you were supposed to for the uh, labor forces, uh, not giving over part of your crops or not growing the crops that the imperial powers wanted you to do. And people would hide, they would desert, um, or in a more organized sense, they might boycott particular colonial structures. So this was ongoing in different imperial contexts throughout the imperial period. Second, you could also have political protests, and we have a great example from Nigeria in 1929, uh, which is often called the Other Women's War, where women organized against the attempt to impose uh, colonial tax on women and to ignore women's role in political governance. So they could formally organize, have demonstrations and that kind of thing. You had armed rebellions and armed uh, insurrections as well, not just uh, fighting colonial powers attempting to occupy the space, but even after colonial powers had occupied the space, rebelling from under their command. And the Indian Rebellion of 1857 is a great example of this kind of um, mass armed uh, resistance. Finally, you also had a sense that the intellectual basis of empire, i.e. the civilizing mission, was being really fundamentally challenged. It was always in question because empire did one thing on uh, the one hand and said something else. So it said it was civilizing, but was often quite violent, for example. And then you had examples coming to light of imperial um, violences. So the Belgian Congo is a great example where King Leopold said he was going to take control control of the Congo essentially, to bring it to civilization, to suppress the slave trade and so on. And it turned out that what was going on in the Congo was a hugely violent, exploitative, uh, murderous regime in which uh, many, many people died. So the visibility of these atrocities gave lie to the idea that Europe was involved in a civilizing mission. Then what happens? So you've got this background of kind of anti-imperial uh, motion mobilization. The early 20th century is a key period in driving uh, the forces of decolonization together. So the first thing is that people who are critical of empire start to form international political movements. You've got the Pan-African Congress, uh, in which people like W.E.B. Du Bois, Kwame Nkrumah were involved, and they're talking to each other about their common situation, right? 
You've also got the formation of nationalist mass movements within countries. India is a kind of classic example of a collection of Indian intellectuals and uh, political types forming uh, an organization to make demands of the British, not in not initially independence demands, but um, demands for greater political representation. Then uh, other things happened, which might be thought of as being to some extent outside uh, the um, auspices of those movements themselves. World War I is a key example, where empires suddenly had to mobilize their entire imperial structures into a war footing. So they had to get imperial soldiers to come and fight in Europe. They had to reorganize imperial economies to produce the goods that they needed. Uh, and violence was taking place around the world. There were theaters of war in Mesopotamia, in the South Pacific, in, um, you know, in Southern India and so on. Um, maybe minor ones, but nonetheless, the whole world was kind of engaged in this process. And this meant that the demands that colonies and uh, imperial subjects could put on empires increased. You also had some other examples of successful rebellion taking place, which arguably inspired and catalyzed a lot of these movements. The Russian Revolution of 1917 was a critical moment in uh, the overthrow of a massive empire in the early 20th century, and its takeover by a movement of the so-called common people. And this was hugely dramatic and hugely destabilizing for the ways in which empires thought about their relationship with their subjects and would continue to be so during the 20th century. You also had declarations of self-determination and the legal standing of self-determination early in the 20th century, most notably um, in Wilson's kind of 14 points adopted as part of the Versailles Treaty after World War I. So the principle that states uh, and peoples should be able to choose their own governments was explicitly discussed was explicitly part of the international framework. And then you've got successful rebellions against colonial rule in the early 20th century, the Irish one being uh, a critical example. And there was a lot of interplay and discourse between Irish intellectuals and other colonized intellectuals, not just then, but throughout the 20th century. So you've got all this buildup going on of decolonization, but this doesn't mean that decolonization actually kind of um, is going to take place. The imperial powers themselves were absolutely convinced that they were going to hang on to their empires for a considerable period uh, to come, particularly in um, Africa and Asia. So what happened? A lot of analyses will put World War II as the breaking point, but they'll do so for different reasons. Um, some, argue, some argue that World War II was a moment in which empire was ultimately delegitimized because Hitler was imperialist, he was expansionist, and part of defeating Hitler meant defeating his racist and imperialist ideologies. Um, this is partly true, and I think uh, the examples of expansionism and militarism and racism that uh, were embodied in the Nazi regime was certainly something that people began to ideologically turn against. But it's also the case that a lot of the European powers, Britain and France in particular, thought that they would continue to control their Asian and African colonies as they had before the war and in recovering those which had been occupied by Japan. There's a different way of telling this story, which is that following World War II, it was the colonies themselves that refused to be governed in this way, and they refused more assertively, taking advantage of imperial weakness, taking advantage of the disarray, and uh, going for their own independence. Um, so you've got, of course, the handover of India in 1947, um, because 
Britain realizes that it's too weak and India has kind of rendered itself ungovernable. And so there's a transition of power. You've also got uh, unilateral declarations of independence. So a good example is in Vietnam, or what we now call Vietnam. Um, the Japanese had occupied it during the war, but um, it was being handed back to the French. But the Vietnamese leader, Ho Chi Minh, uh, declared independence in 1945 as the Japanese were leaving, before the French had really come back, saying, you know, we are an independent state. And that led to a protracted series of uh, conflicts with France. And they used the language of self-determination, of democracy of uh, the rights of all to freedom and equality. So then you get what is understood to be a big wave of decolonization, starting more slowly in the 1940s and 50s when the empires are starting to cling on. But by 1960, the UN is declared in favor of decolonization. And there's a very rapid uh, turnover of many territories um, gaining their independence. And here on the slide, you see a list of just some selected territories and when they got their independence. One of the things you'll notice if you look at um, this list and or a more complete list is that there's a large cluster of independence uh, moments in the 1960s, but they're still going on into the 70s and 80s. And this is where either particular empires decide they want to keep going or where um, uh, countries which are seen as small, too small to be independent, uh, are kind of kept in kept in line. Um, Portugal was interesting insofar as it uh, tried to cling on until the 1970s, but was ultimately defeated by an internal uh, coup. Okay, so how did empires react to these demands for independence, these movements for independence? Uh, what did they do? Empires reacted, I would argue, in fairly similar ways, although it's common to try and draw contrast between different kinds of empires, saying, well, the British Empire was more uh, civilised and it was more polite than the Portuguese Empire, the French Empire. They actually had a fairly similar repertoire of um, tactics of imperial containment. What did they do? Often they would try initially to defer demands for independence. They'd say, you're not ready, we will pass over power when you are ready, but we've got to train you in the arts of government and we've got to train you in the arts of civilization before you can become independent, right? So there were kind of political pushbacks. Then there would often be some kind of accommodation. So there would be some adjustments or reforms, say to the taxation system or to some bureaucratic process or even systems of representation. So you can have a council of representation and it can report to the colonial governor, for example. So that was an attempt to kind of contain demands for more political power. When these things didn't work, they often used uh, repression. So there would be um, strong shows of force. Uh, so we take, for example, the Amritsar uh, massacre in India, where um, the colonial military official decided that people needed to be taught a lesson and so um, engaged in a very kind of violent, spectacular use of force. And or there would be military campaigns to repress independence movements. So we saw in Kenya a massive counterinsurgency campaign against the Mau Mau rebellion um, and the use of quite violent tactics including torture, con um, concentration camps and so on. Some empires tried to get around the legal um, demand for self-determination by saying that these were not colonies but they were part of overseas territories. So Portugal and France often designated some colonies overseas territories and said, well, these are not any different to 
France or Portugal in Europe. They're territorially treated the same, they're just uh, non-contiguous territories. This flew for a little while and in some cases, but often not. Then we could argue that there was a kind of acceptance. There was an acceptance, particularly after the war, that the empires couldn't hold on anymore, that the time had come, that the legal and political environment had changed, and that these territories were often not going to be able to be governed, um, and after they'd sometimes been defeated, as the French were in Indochina. So they accepted and facilitated a transition to uh, independence. But sometimes, as we see, that independence was more nominal than it was real. Uh, and there was a lot of post-independence intervention in countries. A classic example of this is the Belgian Congo, where the leader who was chosen after independence, Patrice Lumumba, uh, was assassinated um, by a combination of a secessionist movement and the Belgian uh, Secret Service because they wanted a friendlier ruler in power, which they ended up with um, Mobutu. And there were lots of these kinds of examples where if the leadership after independence was seen to be going the wrong way, particularly in a more um, Soviet or uh, socialist leaning direction, that there would be intervention. And you can look uh, in more detail if you want at the um, case study of Vietnam um, across the 20th century, because it's a fascinating story of all of these threads coming together. We should also note, and I'll come back to this again, that there are ongoing struggles for decolonization in many settler colonial contexts and societies, and we'll come back to what those are uh, shortly. So this is what happened. Let's reflect uh, in our last few minutes about what it meant for the shaping of the modern world. And essentially, there's two schools of thought, I would argue, around the significance of decolonization. And I'm slightly drawing a contrast out here. Most people would say it's somewhere in between. So the first school of thought, which is one that has probably dominated for most of the 20th century, is that decolonization is not very interesting. It's merely the rest of the world catching up to Europe and European modernity. So adopting the nation state, adopting capitalism, adopting the trappings of um, what is an established framework for what we expect people to be organized by. And this is a kind of end of history argument, like we've achieved the most sensible political form and now the rest of the world is just kind of catching up. So that's one kind of story. A second kind of story is that decolonization was actually a radical shift or a radical transformation in the nature of modernity itself, right? So it changed uh, people's expectations of what was possible. It changed our understanding of what politics was, what economics could be. Now, as we'll understand, there's an element of truth to both these stories and um, some issues as well. So just to think about the case for seeing decolonization as a sort of imitation of what's already there. There is some compelling arguments on this side. Um, the first is to note that post-colonial states have largely imitated uh, the common trappings of the majority of states. And I've got some examples here in the slides, but everybody's got flags, passports, similar kinds of looking institutions of government in terms of their ministries, their state institutions, their parliaments. Uh, the organization of states, the expectation of public services, the economic infrastructure, currencies, and so on. You've got a template for what a national state looks like, and this is mostly how the world is organized. And so the argument is that decolonization doesn't really do anything except for spread this model, spread this template around. And moreover, that lots of these little bits of infrastructure could exist during colonial times and were tweaked 
in order to give the post-colonial um, landscape. And it's also the case that the, the form of decolonization that won out was one that was most closely visibly similar to um, the kind of nation state model that seemed to exist. The case for transformation, however, rebuts some of these arguments. Um, and it says, no, look, the movement for decolonization radically changed how we think about the world, right? First, you reject the imperial right to conquer and rule other territories. That's something which is now illegal, but which has been a dominant principle of global uh, political order for a long time. Uh, we also reject the discourse of backwardness. So we reject the idea that some people are not fit for self-government, that some peoples cannot manage it, that they're inadequately civilized or uh, inadequately rational to do this. Right? That idea, which has governed the world for several hundred years up to this point, uh, is, is pushed away. Many countries uh, in the global south try to radically transform their economic priorities and their planning. They decide to go for national ownership of these commodities that have hitherto been privately or um, exported for imperial powers. They try to plan not for the imperial metropole, but for the well-being of their people, however that is defined. And this, of course, is related to a change in the profile of elites, right? So you don't just have um, a relationship between whiteness and wealth as strongly in the post-colonial world, and particularly in more recent years, but you've got very wealthy individuals in lots of different former colonial spaces, often elites who are now linked to the state. And this is a transformative uh, dynamic in global order. You had the development of transnational or transracial bonds in political projects such as the Third World, uh, events such as the Bandung Conference, uh, and even in things such as the Non-Aligned Movement. There was an attempt to distance uh, the formerly colonized areas from the West. And you had the emergence of new international instruments which were not previously known. So you had uh, the international aid system, for example. And really for the empires themselves, for the first time, Britain and France, as they exist, um, are no longer dominantly imperial powers, but can be said to be more like nation states than they ever have been in their history. And although the global economic challenge ultimately fails, there is an attempt to change this north-south top-down character of the global economy. So which of these stories is correct? I mean, I think they both have an important element of truth, but it's an open question and it's one which everybody who's interested in this issue should think about how much has the world really changed? I'll wrap up briefly by just talking about why we still think about decolonization today. And we've seen it in the media, we've seen it in um, public discourse. And I'd say there's two things going on. On the one hand, there's an argument that in particularly in former imperial powers, there's still this hierarchical attitude to do with public history, with education, and the way in which we understand ourselves. Um, but this has been challenged by minorities and younger people. Um, statues are being questioned, plaques are being questioned, the naming of uh, space and the organization and the ownership of public space is in question. But this can also be understood in the context of the culture war, which um, arguably is a political distraction from other kinds of transformation of state and society. So there's something to bear in mind there. Who's driving the discussion about decolonization? 
The other space in which we need to think about decolonization is in settler colonial spaces. So the indigenous uh, scholar Eve Tuck and uh, Wayne Young have argued that decolonization is not a metaphor. So we can talk about decolonizing education or decolonizing museums, but in spaces such as the US, Canada, Australia, Greenland, these are not um, metaphorical questions, they're literal questions about the rights of indigenous people to political space and to uh, sovereignty. And these are about treaties which were um, um, uh, sort of ripped up and rights which have not been recognized. There's also formerly colonized states practicing arguably colonial um, rule. Uh, so we've got arguments about what's going on in Kashmir, in Xinjiang, um, and the kinds of governance that is being projected over minority populations in those uh, spaces, very much often using those techniques which we looked at earlier. We've still got a number of territories which remain under colonial control, even though in principle they uh, may not be or should not be. Um, the argument over the Chagos Islands, which is a British uh, overseas territory, is a case in point which has been leased to the US as a military base, but Chagossians uh, still demand the right to return. And of course, you've got ongoing uh, colonial projects such as that in uh, Israel and Palestine, where uh, the settlement of land and territory is ongoing and uh, being hotly debated in terms of international law. Which leads us to the question, is decolonization ever really over? Or have colonial influences and colonial powers so deeply imbricated the modern world that the attempt to decolonize is ultimately kind of futile. What we should be doing is kind of building forward. It's an interesting question. It's an open question and one which is still politically salient. So just to conclude then, decolonization has been a major force shaping the modern world with a lot of ongoing relevance for our contemporary situation. Um, and it's one of many forces alongside the others you'll learn about in this module uh, that has produced the world that we understand and know and live in today.